This is the East Dramacast. With your moderators, Ross Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Before we get started on this edition of the podcast, I wanted to reach out to our listeners for just a moment. Our next guest is a surgeon I heard speaking at the Point Counterpoint Conference, and I heard his presentation and thought that would be a great trauma cast. And one of the hardest things about doing trauma cast is coming up with fresh ideas and new speakers. So I wanted to ask the listeners, as the academic season gets rolling and we're about to head into a meeting season this fall, if you hear a great speaker or an interesting topic, or you see some research presented that you think would be good for TraumaCast, let us know, and we'd be happy to set it up. Uh, you can reach out to me directly at MD on Twitter, or MD at Gmail if you want to shoot me an email. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Okay. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to another edition of the TraumaCast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Jim O'Connor. He is a professor of surgery and the chief of thoracic and vascular trauma at Shock Trauma in Baltimore. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Carrie, thank you for the invitation. So I got to hear uh, Jim talk at the Point-Counterpoint Conference this past spring, and his topic of conversation was damage control uh, in thoracic surgery, and that is not something I think many of us do frequently, and it's not um, something I think many of us are comfortable with if you aren't a thoracic uh, surgeon. So I asked him if he'd join me, and we'll kind of walk through like we usually do from the trauma bay all the way into the ICU and then back to the OR, um, and uh, how to manage some thoracic trauma. So the first patient I want to start with is a patient who's come into the trauma bay with severe blunt thoracic trauma. They are hypotensive, they're unstable, and your chest x-ray would indicate that you've got a, a chest filled with blood on the left. You do an emergency thoracotomy, and there's clearly blood coming from the chest, and you can't get it controlled with what you can see in the trauma bay. What are your options at that point? to just stem the flow as you're trying to get up to the operating room? Well, I think you've got a couple. If it's a, if it's a major vascular injury, you may be able to uh, get a temporary arterial clamp. Um, if not, uh, you, if obviously if it's a cardiac injury, you should hopefully be able to get some modicum of control. You, my preference is putting your finger on the hole. Uh, I know some folks have used you know, t- uh, balloon tamponade and other things. I just think digital pressure is everything you need. Um, if you can't do that, then packing the chest um, and just running, getting, running the patient to the operating room uh, where you actually have everything you need uh, are the things that I would be thinking of. Um, the, the, what's really going to drive the decision about damage control clearly is the physiology, and the patient you're describing is someone who is going to be metabolically tremendously altered. Uh, so that's the, fo- the patient that I would be most interested in saying that somebody's going to need damage control, and that's kind of my mindset going to the operating room. It's so similar to how we treat the abdomen. We're not necessarily going in and doing every single anastomosis and, and tidying up. We're just trying to stop the bleeding, get source control, and get them off the table safely. Correct. And I think where it's a little different in the chest is that uh, you have to, obviously, the contamination is less of a, of a question unless there's a, uh, you know, an injury to the esophagus. 
Um, but certainly there was always concern about, well, you know, now I'm going to pack you know, pack the chest, am I going to compromise cardiac function, am I going to compromise pulmonary function? So you have to have a little bit of an eye on the uh, on their CO2 uh, as well as their O2 to make sure that you're not compromising any of that. It's been our experience and others that you really, what you're really packing more often than not is the chest wall, especially in blunt injury. Although there have been some reports in the literature of people packing uh, a lung that they couldn't control, simply putting a you know a, a lap on the on the lung. Again, it's a low pressure circuit uh, in general. There's obviously bronchial supply, but majority of it is on the pulmonary side, and that tends to be a low pressure circuit, which uh, theoretically you have a better chance of stopping the bleeding. To talk a bit about technique, um, and we don't need to get into a full thoracic uh, expose, but. If you have a lot of bleeding and you've got a hyalur injury and it's, it's a vessel it's somewhere in there, can you give us some of the tips that you reviewed for how to manage, you know, a bleeding hyalur injury? Yeah, there are several. Um, uh, there are several principles I think. One is if it's at the a low bar, uh, the hilum of the lobe. Uh, our practice uh, is to do a lobectomy if, if it's not easily reparable. Obviously, if you can repair it simply with some suture, then you're done, you can declare victory. Um, more often than not, it's a lobectomy, and um, our experience, at least the, the data that we've put together, seems that that's a fairly, it's a much more frequent operation than we normally would have thought. The, there's a, a group in, in South America, uh, Dr. Garcia and his guys, and, and they've actually said they just felt in a terrible pulmonary hyalur injury, they will just clamp the hilum and come back and do a resection days or hours later. I think if you if you have a, a situation where you're looking at doing a pneumonectomy, that's a very uh, obviously a dramatic operation with a very high mortality. And I think in that situation, you have a couple of things that you have to really think about relatively quickly. One is if this is a hyalur injury that you can again address and fix simply. Terrific. If you're having difficulty getting control, I know people have talked about the hyalur twist. My own, my own uh, bias is to just get my hand around the hilum. The other thing that you can do is you can open the pericardium and get the vessels intrapericardial, and that, that buys you another centimeter or two of vessel. And sometimes that's an easier place to get control. Uh, so basically you open the, the pericardium, you come right down on the vessels, and you can get temporary control. Um, the decision-making, I think, is really critical at that point. If this is an injury that you feel you can fix and not commit to a, a pneumonectomy, terrific. But if it's an injury that you feel needs a pneumonectomy, then you should simply do the pneumonectomy. And I'm not saying it's it, in a cavalier way, but the longer you spend, the longer time you spend, Trying to repair it in a patient who's in shock and hemorrhaging, it's it's going you know the situation is going to get from bad to worse. Um, and the other thing is, if you do say, listen, I need to do a pneumonectomy, you really have to start thinking right at that at that moment about the consequences. If you can control the bleeding, they're not going to die from hemorrhage; they're going to die from acute right heart failure. So in that setting, you really want to kind of jump on, if you will, 
the, the management of, of right heart failure with pulmonary vasodilators. They may need inotropic support, um, but you really have to be thinking a, a way ahead of this because the, the right heart failure is going to be the one that, that will get you. Um, and there was a great study years ago from, from Gil Cryer where he looked at doing a pneumonectomy in an animal model and hemorrhage in an animal model and hemorrhage plus pneumonectomy. Uh, and looked at pulmonary pressures and, and pulmonary resistance, and it was orders of magnitude higher when you had shock plus pneumonectomy. So that's a, a, a lethal combination. And if there's an um, injury to the esophagus, so you've controlled bleeding, you've got an injury to the esophagus, you're starting to think about getting off the table. Can you just staple across the esophagus and just leave a gap and just get out of there? How, how do you manage your esophageal injuries? Yeah, more often than not, I, I, tr I think the principles there are to do everything you can to preserve esophageal length. Um, I, I would try to repair it and, and buttress it and drain it. And I'm not doing, talking about an elegant repair, but maybe just a single layer closure, buttress it and, and drain the living daylights out of it and get out. Um, and you have the option of obviously you can drop a nasogastric tube. Um, in terrible injuries where we've seen this, we've, we've reported this uh, with a handful of cases where you can actually, uh, uh, especially if there's an injury right at the esophagogastric junction, to run a, a retrograde tube up. We've done that in the past. But basically you just want to get control of the, the, the leakage and the sport, you know, so that the mediastinum doesn't get terribly contaminated. So my, my uh my practice is to do everything I can to try to close that. Listen, if you're in a situation where there's such devastating injury to the to the esophagus that you can't, then stapling it and draining it and coming back to either try to, you know, do a gastric pull-up uh, is a reasonable approach, or if you need to, you know, if it's really a terribly devastated injury, then maybe you need a uh, some sort of a, you know, a conduit such as small bowel or colon. But that's... Um, those would have to be terribly devastating injuries. Okay, I'm about ready to move out of the OR, unless there's anything else you wanted to add to the actual damage control surgery. I think I, I think the important thing when you're in the operating room is you is as we as you know for as everybody knows is you control the major vessel stuff, the major vessel bleeding. You know most of the veins you can ligate. A lot of this stuff is going to be coming off the chest wall. You can pack it. Um, you, you pack the chest wall. You try not to compress, especially the cardiac function. The lung, the lung, you can usually compress reasonably well without a terrible problem. Then you leave the, we uh, we put a 1010 drape down and and then a modified vacuum dressing. The, the other thing which we didn't talk about is you can't you can't at all compromise on exposure. So if you're going through the left chest and you need more, come across in a clamshell, or if you've if you've made a decision going in to do a sternotomy, you know, make sure you really have the the exposure you need to get whatever d done you need to get done. You you can't compromise in that setting. So with modified vacuum dressing, um, I also leave in drains. Even though you're going to have uh, the chest packed, I usually leave large bore uh, a drain posteriorly in the pleural space and, and maybe one in the in the mediastinum as well. Um, to get, you know, get, again, getting control of whatever bleeding there may be that, uh, again, just having the packs in may or may not do the entire trick, so the chest drains are important. And then back up just a touch. Making the decision to get out of the OR, cold, coagulopathic, acidotic, any different when you're dealing with a ch patient with chest injury compared to a patient with a, a, a abdominal or a retroperitoneal injury? 
I, I don't think so, Carrie. I think it's the same the same thought. Do I have surgical bleeding? If so, I need to control it. If it's coagulopathic bleeding, then it's a then they need the they need the resuscitation. You know, pack what you can. Um, say you know, get that pack, get a dressing on, get them up, and get them to the ICU where they can be resuscitated. And not to be redundant, I really want you to take take me through how do you pack a chest. I would be imagining most people have never actually packed a chest. What labs do you use? How do you do it? How sure. do you get suction? How much suction? Things like that. So, again, imagine you've got the, the uh, uh, major vascular bleeding under control. You don't have surgical bleeding. So sure. I will leave a, a large bore uh, straight chest drain, like a 36, uh, running posteriorly uh, on, the, on the posterior chest wall all the way up to the apex of the, of the, of the chest. Um, and then some drain in the mediastinum if I've opened the mediastinum. Um, if, and the other option is you can stick a right angle, another right angle tube down in the costophrenic angle. Um, and then I, I just take lap pads and I start at the apex and just pack up on the chest wall. What you're packing is the chest wall. Usually the mediastinum not so much, especially on the right side. You don't want to put too much pressure because you've got the cavy. So, but on the left side you can pack pr fairly well. Just make sure you're not putting so much pressure on the heart that you compromise cardiac function. And you know that because you're looking at it. This is not a big surprise, so you, you can see it right in front of you. Um, once the packs are in, uh, you try to keep the lung expanded. You want the lung expanded. Then I put in a, a fenestrated 1010 drape and a modified vacuum dressing uh, and just crank the suction until I have, you know, you know, get good suction and good seal and then I'm done. And the chest drains, I, I put them to individual pleurivax. I want to know individually what's what's draining. Um, you still and, put those just a continuous negative 20? Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, and, and I usually get an x-ray before I leave the the, uh, the operating room just to make sure that there's no atelectasis on the contralateral side, that the, you know, the endotracheal tube is where you want it, all of that stuff before you move the patient because if there's something else you need to do, you're in the operating room to do it. Um, now, obviously, the one side is going to look uh, fairly uh, opaque because you've got <laughs> Hopefully. You've got it, uh, you, yeah, you've got it packed. I got that. But the, uh, you want to make sure that, again, that you know you don't have a big mediastinal shift, that you're, you're – um, the contralateral side, there's no atelectasis that you need to take care of. Um, and, again, that the, the endotracheal tube and other other tubes are right where you want them. Uh, and then uh, off to the intensive care unit. And presuming just for the sake of our discussion, this patient has an isolated, you know, major um, thoracic injury. Open chest in the ACU, anything in particular other than just keeping the drains to suction that we need to be watching for, any differences in vent management? How do you handle these patients? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you really have an open and essentially a fairly open chest. So the air, the, the peak, unless they have a, a, a terrible ARDS, the, the peak airway pressures are usually modest. Uh, you don't really have to worry about that. I tend, especially if it's been a, something in the mediastinum where I've done a, you know, major vessel repair or a cardiac repair, a lot of these folks have tenuous hemodynamics. I tend to ask the nurses not to move the patient. Don't you know? Everybody wants to rotate them up, and we do a lot of chest PT, as you know, Carrie. And you know, we're we're really good about all that stuff. I just say leave the patient alone. Just keep them flat. Don't do too much. I try to you know, obviously, going to keep them out. Whether you want high dose sedation or a paralytic, just keep them out. Um, and then uh, at, when they're resuscitated, then we're going to you know plan on going back to the OR. 
Um, but other than that, I don't, there's nothing different about their management than it would be for a typical ICU patient who's, you know, physiologically stressed. So for the ArtsNet protocol, typically we're six to eight cc's per kilo for um, tidal volume, assuming we're not doing like an APRV. If you've packed half the chest, should I then shoot for like a three to four cc per kilo? Pretend they have half their, their lungs available? Actually, the, the packing is, is usually so much posteriorly that the, the lung itself doesn't, doesn't get interfered with terribly. And usually you're right around six per kg anyway. So it, it's, it's, although it sounds like it should be half, it's really not. You right. can still run them about the same. And we obviously, you know, we're going to adjust all that based on their, on their PCO2 and, you know, pH. So it, it, it turns out to roughly, Roughly six cc's or six mLs per kg. So when they are not acidotic, not coagulopathic, and they've warmed up, what do you? How do you go through your thought process and timing of getting back into the um, operating room? Is it as soon as you possibly can? Do you need to let them rest for a bit before you go back in the chest? How do you manage that? Uh, I think once their physiology has been restored, um, and it's you know, you're not. I, I wouldn't do it at three o'clock in the morning, but you know, the next, uh, in the light of day, the next day, once their physiology has been restored, I want to go back as quickly as we can and and close them. You know, the first the first uh, uh, paper we wrote on this, we we kind of looked at the folks uh, that had both blind and penetrating injury, and our and our time to closure, I think, was just shy of three days, it was two point something days, and. Our most recent experience with the penetrating injuries is we're going back, it's under two days, because once they're resuscitated, that's when you want to take them back. Um, and, and just what you said, you know, you want their pH normalized, their, their temperature, their, their you know, acid-base status, uh, and their coagulopathy. Once all that's sorted out, yeah, you, you want to go back. Um, and the sequence there is I've, I kind of go back with the planet. I want to at least get the bony thorax closed. If I can close more than that, terrific. But I want at least the skeletal part of the of the chest wall closed. And, you know, you just take them back. You take the dressings down. You take the packs out. Um, and more often than not, the, the, the you know, the bleeding has, has hopefully by that point has stopped or you've been back sooner. Um, to the operating room. I irrigate the living daylights out of the pleural space because obviously they're at higher risk for empyema. Uh, get whatever control I need, both, you know, with cautery or, or clips or sutures, whatever. Um, and then the other thing is if we've done a resection, so say we've done a lobectomy, I don't cover the bronchial stump at the index operation. That's just waving in the breeze. At this, At the second operation, when we go back for closure, at that point I'll take uh, usually intercostal or if it's low-lying, a piece of diaphragm and bring it up to cover the, to bolster the uh, the bronchial stump um, and, and then kind of routine closure, you know, have your chest drains in and, and close the chest as you would any other time. We we're, we obviously keep a very close eye on their hemodynamics as we do that. Um, if, if they're on vasoactive when we go to the OR, a lot of times I'll use a, uh, I'll request a TE, and as you know, we're, we're fortunate to have several of our anesthesia colleagues here who are TE qualified, certified folks. So that's kind of nice. Uh, you know, if you close the chest or you close the mediastinum and the pressure drops, you, you got the memo. But, but a lot of times you'll, you'll see some echocardiographic evidence of tamponade, which you may want to treat. Um, before you close the chest. 
The other thing, um, uh, you know, so again, closing the chest is fairly straightforward. It's kind of what you do in any other case, close it the same way. One other thing you look for is their mean airway pressures. So we keep a, you know, we want to make sure that we haven't uh, jacked up their mean airway pressure. Um, and again, in the studies that we've done and published, that it, it really has never been a, a problem with closing. Like that's the other thing people say, well, you know, you're going to close the chest. Now their mean airway pressures may shoot up. We've not found that to be the case. If the, and for if, our uh, residents who are listening and some of our young fellows, if you would just do a quick review on closing the chest, what sutures do you use and what layers do you care about? Sure. Um, so there's... In general, I, I, if I was closing it electively, I would use absorbable suture uh, as pericostals. Uh, I usually do them as a figure of eight. Uh, you can do them as, you know, you can do simple, you know, you, you know it doesn't really matter. You can do a mattress. Uh, but you want to close the, uh, the, the pericostals. You really want those nice and tight. You use a, a heavy suture number one or something that size. If I'm in these cases, because I think there's a higher risk, I don't think, I know there's a higher risk of infection, I will tend to close these with a non-absorbable. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'll usually use a number one proline as a uh, pericostal. Uh, and usually if you, you, there's a little, you know, for folks that don't know, there's a little thing called a Bailey rib approximator, which you can, looks like a mid, an instrument of medieval torture, but you can kind of clamp the ribs and crank it down. It takes tension off the chest wall, makes tying the sutures much easier so that you really have good apposition. Um, and, and then uh, you could close the muscle layers with, with usually a running absorbable. Um, and depending on where you are, depending on how far posterior, but it's, you know, it's going to close latissimus uh, and, you know, bring stuff together. Uh, I tend to leave the skin open just because, again, my concern for infection, I usually vac it uh, and then either close it, do a delayed primary closure, or just vac it if I'm concerned. If there is any concern that you may have tissue def deficit through the intercostals or through um, uh, one of the uh, larger muscles, and you're going to put a vac on, do you need to cover the base of your vac with a different sponge? Like, you know, if you're concerned about bowel, potentially, you use a white sponge. And is it the same uh, concept with any concern for lung tissue? Yes, it is. Yes, so absolutely. If you're going and you're closing it definitively, um, I'll usually do a, a, a muscle advancement. Usually pec advancement on the chest wall is good enough to, to cover most of the defects. We had a, a young gal just a, a handful of months ago that had a terrible, one of the worst uh, flails I had seen. Uh, and there were just ribs missing, and we did, you know, pec advancement and advanced part of the lat, and that covered enough of the, the bony thorax where there was no bone there to, so we didn't have to put anything on the lung. But, yes, you want to use something that's not going to stick to the lung so when you take it off you don't have a big air leak and a big problem. Sure. We're going to move on to complications. What should we be looking for? We've gotten through this massive case for like in footballs, but you know that the complications are coming. Yeah, I think you know they're coming. It's a matter of uh, not not if, it's a matter of when you get them and then how many. Um, and I think they fall into a couple of categories. One is anything related to the plural space. So, again, our experience, you know, was that, um, for example, uh, I think our, our complication rate, empyema was running – you know, 20, 25 percent. 
Now, not all of those need reoperation. Some of those can be managed with catheter-based therapy. Um, some may need to be operated on, but it's it's expected. Um, wound infections, depending on how you, and I'm talking about superficial wound infection, how you, whether you want to close skin or not. Again, my bias is I tend not to. Um, in these, at the the time that I close the chest wall, I often do not close the skin. Um, and and then you have the whole host of other problems that you'd expect from somebody being that sick. So again, our experience was, you know, acute renal failure is in the you know, 30% plus range, and, and most of those people require CRT. Um, another 25 or so percent, maybe even more, are bacteremic, um, and probably another 20%, give or take, are going to have some element of ARDS. So, you know, these are folks that, that have, are going to have some serious complications. You know it's going to be, they're coming. Um, and you just kind of deal with them as we would anybody else. What was interesting in our uh, report that what we've published is that those patients who, ha and they have a long length of stay in the hospital and the ICU and they're ventilated and they're trached, all of that. But of interest, when they actually are discharged home, none of them were on, none of them were in renal failure and none of them were ventilated. So you're paying the, you know, you're going to pay the price in the, in the hospital. They're going to be pretty sick. Um, but if you can weather the storm when they're home, they're, they're, they're no longer hooked up to the ventilator. They've been liberated from that, and, and they're not in renal failure. So um, you just you just know those complications are coming. And again, you kind of think of them in the the are, are they related to the plural space? Uh, are they re, or are they related to kind of just generally being sick with such as you know acute renal failure and bacteremia and ARDS? That's great. Um... What a wonderful review. And this is really what I was hoping for because when I heard your presentation at count point, or excuse me, point counterpoint, I just like, I haven't thought about this stuff in ages and we just don't see these injuries very often. So I really well, do appreciate that you've taken some time to go through it in a, in a nice systematic way. Well, you know, I think what part of that is, Carrie, is that, you know, the number of patients or the percentage of patients that have a thoracic injury that actually require surgery is pretty low. Un unlike you know, a, a traumatic, you know, it's a torso injury, it's the abdomen, the more people are going to require laparotomy. Obviously, we can tr treat, you know, 75-plus percent of patients with a thoracic injury with chest drains and the usual, you know, pain management. So it's a smaller numerator all of a sudden. And then of that smaller numerator that gets operated on, it's a smaller numerator, once again, of people that need damage control. But the principles, I think the important thing is the principles are the same. And there's really, uh, there's no magic to packing the chest. I'm a thoracic surgeon, I got that, but I'm not going to say total magic here. It's not. Uh, you, you're doing the same thing, and if you're just you know, cognizant of the fact, yeah, I really don't want to compress the heart, and I want to make sure the lung is, you know, still inflated, and I've got the chest wall packed, uh, and, and resuscitate the patient, and, you know, as I said, bring him back and, and kind of do the routine chest closure. Um, but no... Absolutely know you're going to be uh, you're in for it for the long haul, which is good. You prefer to be in it for the long haul. Sure. Yeah. Every day that you get is, is another good day. Correct. Uh, and again, the the other thing that we found in in our study was that the, the number, especially on the, with the penetrating injuries, the number of people who had, you know, I think it was in excess of 60% of the people required an exploratory lap as well as a damage control procedure. So these are folks that coming in with multiple penetrating torso injuries. So you know, you, you're kind of looking at both. You've, you've got, 
you know, uh, both cavities involved, and, and sometimes it's, you know, two teams, sometimes it's, you know, one team, and you're doing them sequentially. But oftentimes these folks are, you know, fairly severely severely injured. And, and the one, 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 one more thing that I think is really important that comes out of what we've, what we've looked at is that when we looked at admission blood pressure and shock index in patients that needed damage control, more often than not, those blood pressures were normal. In, in our first study, I think the, the, the I don't know, we had 40-some-odd patients in the study, but their admission blood, systolic blood pressure was 110 with a heart rate just a little over 110, and their pH was 7.07 with a base deficit of minus 11. So the, the disconnect between looking at the blood pressure and knowing what their physiology is, that's why I think really understanding the physiology drives all those decisions. Obviously, if they come in with a blood pressure that's 60, everybody's got the memo that that patient's really in trouble. Sure. But looking at, a, especially in a younger patient, because they compensate so so well, you look at a blood pressure which is, quote, normal, and a heart rate which is, quote, normal, and yet their pH is, you know, 7 and seven low, and, and you're, you're really, you realize metabolically and physiologically how stressed they are. I think that is so important. Yeah, couldn't be said better. Well, Jim, thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope that those who are listening uh, were able to glean something from this and maybe remember this podcast is out there at 2 o'clock in the morning if you're heading into <laughs> to, uh, thoracic uh, and damage control. You can kind of highlight it and go back after the surgery and maybe just you know remind yourself of, uh, of the steps that are coming and, and what to look out for. Absolutely, and I, I, again, I uh, appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to you know uh, be able to contribute a little bit something here. So thank you, Carrie. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.